This is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament number five. And we're going to try to finish it off here today. I'd like to begin by having you turn, if you could, to Luke chapter four. I think it's a great place to begin to launch off from Luke chapter four to verse 17. And here we have Jesus who was worshiping one day in his local synagogue and they put out the question if anyone wanted to stand and share and they used to do that give an opportunity to people to come up and read from the scriptures and share what might be on their heart in this section he is asked to read from the scriptures and it's just fascinating what happens in verse 17 and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah And when he had opened the book, handed the book because it would have been a large scroll. The books of the Bible were in scrolls in those days. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. He went to a specific place. And it says in verse 18, this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he stopped, and we read that he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, we would read this and assume that because he sat down he was finished but in all reality the rabbis would stand to read the word of God and then when they were getting ready to teach they would sit down so the very act of sitting down said to all of them he's about to launch into some teaching on this text so that the Bible says then every eye in the synagogue was fixed upon him You could have heard a pin drop in the place. Absolute silence. And they were wondering, what is he going to say? Wondering if he would probably give the same dreary kind of religiosity, repetition of the general principles they'd heard over and over and over again. Because basically this was like a dead church where you hear the same things preach over and over and over. So he sat down and everybody's eyes were on him. You could have heard a pin drop. And his first words are absolutely electrifying. In verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the inference that he was making was absolutely inescapable. You can hear the the mumbles begin. You can see the people elbowing each other. You can see the frowns coming on the faces Because what he was claiming was inescapable. He was saying to them that when Isaiah wrote these words about the Messiah, he was talking about him. And you go on and read, you see their reaction. They were violent in their reaction. Because they knew where he was from. They knew his background. They knew him. And this was totally unexpected. But as you go on from there, everywhere he went, everything he did, every sermon he taught, every person he healed confirmed for the rest of his public ministry that he was in fact the fulfillment of those words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, for example, it says in verse 5, 
a prophecy, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And he went all around doing that. You read in Matthew 9.35, for example, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. John in chapter 21, verse 25, says, And there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John is saying there that he went around, he did so much of what was foretold of him that if you were to write a book about everything and record everything, it would fill up the whole world with books. When you read in John 5.39, where Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. The more we look at this, the plainer it becomes, and the deeper we realize all that he meant by that statement. And so we are using that as our theme for this series. We have already talked about how the Old Testament testifies of Christ in terms of theophanies, his appearance as a man or as an angel, looking at the angel of the Lord in detail. We've seen that. We took some time and talked about the types of Christ that are in the Old Testament. And really, I stopped short. We could have gone another five messages easy, just going into the tabernacle in the wilderness where everything from the moment you step inside of the courtyard of the tabernacle, everything there, whether it be the the altar where they gave the offerings, the burnt offerings, whether it be the laver where the priests washed, whether it be the bread inside the holy place, or the candlestick, the menorah that lit the place and the perpetual burning of the oil, and the only light in the place was that candlestick, whether it be the incense altar before the veil, whether it be the veil itself, which was rent when Jesus died, whether it be the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, whether it be the glory that was manifested there, or Ten Commandments inside the Ark, or whether it be the covering of the Ark, the mercy seat. Everywhere you turned in the tabernacle, there was a type of Jesus Christ, a shadow of what He would do when He came. So we really stopped short of really dealing with all the types. And last time we began to talk about the prophecies, and I told you that there are over 300 prophecies that were given which Jesus Christ as the Messiah fulfilled in His birth, His death, His resurrection and ascension into heaven. And discussing that, we have already talked about the lineage of Christ and the birth of Christ. And I want to go on now and talk about the person of Christ in terms of how it's prophesied. And there are some things here that just deeply ministered to me. For example, in terms of the person of Christ, when you read the Old Testament prophecies, you find immediately that they prophesy that the Messiah would be a man, a true man, a human being in every sense of the word. So, as you move through the Messianic prophecies, whether it be in the beginning in Genesis, where he'd be the seed of the woman, or whether it be his lineage from Abraham and down through all the others, Jacob, Isaac, all of them, David, 
all of this testifies of the fact he would be a man. The fact that he would be born in a certain place in Bethlehem. And if you kind of take a sidestep and study what the, the Jewish people actually thought about their coming Messiah, it was across the board a uniform expectation of the Jews that their Messiah would be a man and that he would be born of a Jewish woman. So the expectation all around was that he would be human. You say, well, why is that important? Well, I can think of one thing right off the top of my head. Christian science people believe that Jesus Christ was a phantom. So that if you walked along behind him, he left no tracks in the sand. You could see him, yes, but in reality he was a phantom. And so they just go off there, away from the humanity of Jesus Christ, and thus he becomes a different Jesus. But the Bible is clear that he was 100% human. Now, as you go through and you read these prophecies, to me, the fact that every single one of them is fulfilled in detail uh, is so fascinating. But that isn't all that really moves my heart. One of the things to me that is so encouraging is to see the manner in which they are fulfilled. In other words, over and over and over, as you see these prophecies fulfilled, you see the love of God expressed. And it's expressed not just generally, but intensely. And every expression is given to draw you to Jesus Christ. Every single expression. All the prophecies in some way just literally flow with the love of God inviting you to Him. And that is especially true in His humanity. For example, Jesus was human, yes. But if you think about the nature of His human life, He was human living His life from the time He was born and grew up as a kid, human on, the, on a low scale of humanity. Not born into a palace on a high scale, but born lowly. From the birth in the manger and, and on and on, growing up in a nowhere place, Nazareth. But even to go before that, Jesus, throughout his life, bore the stigma of an illegitimate child. From the very beginning, you know, we believe in the virgin birth now, and much of the church does, although with the passing of time there are many liberals who don't. But that doctrine has been deliberated on and agreed on by the Christian world in general. We believe in that now. But if you think about the time in which Jesus lived, they didn't believe in the virgin birth. Here is this boy born, and he is born to a mother, for all intents and purposes, out of wedlock, before the marriage was consummated. So Jesus grew up among the whispers of the people around of here he comes, the illegitimate child. So he had that stigma throughout of his life of being conceived out of wedlock. I mean, just picture it in your mind, if you will. Let's make it contemporary and see if you can get the feel of it. Imagine a wonderful, outstanding church group. And among all the teenage kids in the church group, you have this outstanding holy young girl. Scholars estimate Mary was anywhere from 14 to maybe 17 at the most when she became pregnant with the child of the Holy Spirit and was in the midst of her long engagement period. So imagine you have this choice young girl and she's in the church group and, 
And all of a sudden, she shows up pregnant. She has a reputation of being more godly than anybody else in the group. So that nothing about her life would have given you any warning that this could happen. And all of a sudden, she shows up and she's pregnant. You can imagine everybody would be shocked. And the kind of whispering that would go on would be, you know, you know how cheap we are sometimes. Well, I can imagine so-and-so over here, but not her. We're so cruel so often. But you can understand how shocked everyone would be. Then put yourself in the position of the leader of the youth group. And he's standing back watching all this, and he's going, what do I do now? So finally, he works up the courage to go over to her, and he says... Uh, I don't know how to ask you this. You know, you've just had such a great reputation and everything, but who is the father? And she smiles so flippantly almost. And she says, it's so wonderful. It's God, (laughs) the Holy Spirit. And you can just imagine, they think, what happened to her? Not only has she gotten herself pregnant, she's gone crazy at the same time, you know. So you can realize that that basically she would be laughed to scorn. She would become the laughing stock, not only now turning up pregnant, but now saying that God of all things is the Father. So this becomes even more interesting when you realize that in the Bible times, there was a specific place that a child born out of wedlock had. And what you find is that in the Bible times, an illegitimate child and his descendants to the 10th generation were excluded from the assembly of the Lord. So this was no lightweight thing. People didn't look at it the way they do now. Oh, what else is new? You know, stars in Hollywood, they're never married. They're always having kids. You know, my favorite superstar has five. You know, we don't, we can't hardly relate to this, but in those days... Down to the 10th generation, you would be cut off from the assembly of the Lord. Further, you had no real claim to any solid paternal care, to any of the usual privileges given to those that were born into the marriage union, no real claim to the discipline that you had with legitimate children in that sense. So, though we know that Jesus was not illegitimate, His world and his day viewed him entirely differently. They saw him as basically the child of sin. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were seeking, let's just say you were God. Don't think about it too long. But if you were thinking, you were God and you were thinking about coming and revealing yourself to mankind, and you were seeking to be recognized as God... If you and I were figuring this out, I don't think you'd want this sort of thing on your record. God is coming. And by the way, you know, the record shows born out of wedlock. Because, you know, you give your opponents any opportunity to really sling the mud at you. You really give them the opportunity to have a whispering campaign, the gossip circle, the whole thing. That's the way we would see it. But to truly look at it from God's point of view, this is how it works out. What happens is this, all the multitudes of people in the world who had borne the scorn and the mocking and the rejection of all the holier-than-thous among the nation of Israel around them, every one of those people could now find comfort in this man who really was from heaven 
and would not be intimidated to be set off back from him, but rather would have the freedom to rush in and listen to what he had to say to them and to find redemption. It's, it's just marvelous to see how God put it all together. I look at that and I realize no wonder the common people heard him gladly. You read that in the Bible. The common people heard him gladly. It was all by design. So in his humanity, not only does he just fulfill the prophecies, but the way he fulfills them is absolutely amazing in how it reveals the love of God reaching out to those even on the lowest level of life. But there's more. For example, his genealogy. In terms of his humanity, you look at his genealogy and it's filled with riffraff. Have you ever noticed that? You open up the Gospel of Matthew, you start reading through it, and it's filled with riffraff, what we would call today riffraff. In other words, it's just littered with names like Ruth the Moabite. And there was a curse upon the Moabites. And you find in his genealogy none other than Rahab, who from what we can figure out, it seems she was a prostitute. You find Jacob, his name is in there, and he is, we know, a noted cheat as we read the pages of the Bible until God changes him. You go on reading and you find, of all people, Judah, who was a womanizer. Frankly, when I went in this church to the book of Genesis, I had a hard time when I got to that passage on Judah. It was, it was difficult for me to deal with it. But there he is. And you continue reading and you find David. The prophecies come that Christ would sit on the throne of David. It would come down through his line. But you look at David's life and you see that he committed murder with Uriah the Hittite to get to his wife Bathsheba. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer and he had blood-stained hands and that precluded then his building of the temple. But then you keep reading and you find that of all things Bathsheba is in the genealogy. So that Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon. And you think, well, I can deal with that. That's really good because, you know, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He was really in there with God. Right, right, right. But Solomon also gathered wives and concubines unto himself until he had almost 1,000 wives and concubines. Imagine that, men. 1,000. To me, one is... You know, the tragic thing is that he married all these ungodly women and they turned his heart away from the Lord. What happens as you read down through this lineage, this genealogy, and what you find out is this is so human. This is the way it is. Whether we like it or not, this is humanity. This is life. I read through that and it reads to me like uh, an average church congregation. As you get to know the people and you get to know their backgrounds and... I mean, converted, of course. Converted, of course. But, um, but the point is this. Jesus foregoes an unstained genealogy so that his ancestry can never intimidate us. He could have been born in a palace. He could have been born rich and wealthy and all of that. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to be born in a line, not just his life, not just his own humanity, but those that went before him, that we could look at the whole thing and say, you know what, this is for me. I can relate to this. 
You know, you meet these people who say, I, I just don't know if the Lord could forgive me. And if you're one here tonight and you think, you know what? I am at the bottom. I am the worst of sinners. There's no one worse than me. If you feel that way and you feel like Jesus would never forgive you, take a look at these things we're talking about and all of a sudden you realize, hey, you know what? The way I read this list, maybe there is room for me. And it's that that opens your heart, even as the worst of sinners, to come and be completely forgiven and join the family of God, which is a bunch of ex-people like this. So you fit right in and you feel comfortable. And that's the point. That's the point. So he bore the stigma of an illegitimate child in his humanity. His genealogy is filled with riffraff. But let me take you even further in his humanity. This just is really something to me. He was not a handsome man. Jesus was not a handsome man. You might find that difficult to accept. You might say, you know what, now you're going too far. I can buy everything you've said, but I have a picture on my wall. I know for sure that Jesus was a beautiful, red-haired Irishman. He's on my wall. I can bring it and I can show you. Isaiah tells us differently. Isaiah 53, 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You know what that is saying? That is saying that he looked like just another face in the crowd. Whether it's a man, he's so handsome, or a woman, she's so beautiful. There are those people that are so good-looking that the first thought that goes across your mind when you stand next to them in their presence is, I hate you. <laughs> I'm so ugly, and you're so good-looking. Why did God make you like that and make me like this? You know what I'm talking about. So, you're jealous of them and all of this. It's intimidating. But here the Bible says no beauty. He was just another face in the crowd. Nothing about him to make him stand out whatsoever. That's why I believe when you read through the Bible that Jesus, you know, like when they got mad at him in the synagogue when he said, in this day, this saying from Isaiah is fulfilled in your ears. They run on him. You know, they want to throw him off the cliff. They want to kill him. And, and he passes through their midst. I think he just had such a common face that he just blended right into the crowd. One thing that reinforces that thought in my mind is that, you know, when Judas comes to the garden to betray Jesus, what does he do? He has to walk all the way over, and the signal is, it's the one that I kiss. So he gives him the classic Mediterranean kiss, you know, like they still do this day. And then they know, that's the one. Well, why did he have to do that? Why couldn't they just say, Hey, hey, he's in the garden, and when you get there, you'll recognize him, of course. I mean, he's been here three years. Everybody knows who he is. I think he had such a common face that he was just so easy to miss in the crowd. And I think the reason for that is, again, he wanted everybody to feel comfortable around him. He wanted everybody to feel, you know, this is the most approachable individual I've ever met. So winsome, so loving, so wise, and yet this background... There's nothing here that would keep me back from him. So his humanity is absolutely fascinating to see the prophecies fulfilled and the way in which God fulfills those prophecies. And then, of course, his deity is, 
is uh, foretold in the Old Testament. And we've already looked at many things that speak of that. For example, Jeremiah 23, 5, where it says that he will be the branch of righteousness. And, and then verse 6 says he will be the Lord our righteousness. We talked about that. We talked about the different names. Isaiah 9, 6, you know this. You see it probably every year on Christmas cards. This is a legitimate one to put on a Christmas card. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next thing? Mighty God. Mighty God, that's right. That is as clear as it can be. Psalm 2, 7 says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We're drawing attention to that in uh, the New Testament. Micah 5.2 that we read last time about his birth in Bethlehem says, Whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. So over and over and over and over in the New Testament, his deity is manifested. And we actually, in John 5, before we got off on this... <laughs> tangent, we went for literally message after message after message in John 5 talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. So it's all over the Old Testament and he manifests his deity all over the New Testament. So the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the person of Jesus Christ. But also it is filled with prophecies of the life of Jesus Christ. So far we've seen the lineage, the birth, and the person. Let's talk about the life. The Bible says in no uncertain terms that his public ministry would be announced by a special messenger. So then in Isaiah 40, why don't you turn there. Isaiah 40 in verse 3. It's just amazing how clear this is. Isaiah 40, verse 3. I noticed a few weeks ago that in turning, I was watching and some that had the little tabs on their Bible went right to the place, while others went... And then there's those speed ones that... You know? There's all kinds of tricks you can use to find these things. In Isaiah 40, verse 3... The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That is so clear. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there it is. It says right there that the public ministry of the Messiah, who it's so clear would be God, the public ministry is going to be foretold by a man who will be out in the desert crying out this message about the coming Messiah. And then in Malachi, could you turn to Malachi? Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. We have uh, many years later, God adds to that. Malachi 3, 1. And the Lord says, See... I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come 
says the Lord Almighty. So there is the prophecy of the coming messenger as well as some of the other things coming to his temple. And you get the picture in there of Jesus coming in, cleansing the temple and all of that, taking the place literally by storm. But there can be no doubt that these are prophecies of none other than who? John the Baptist. I mean, it's obvious. John the Baptist to me is an interesting study because again, he is so utterly human. And there's such an allowance made there for the fact that he's such a unique character. And that then leaves room for so many of us who are so utterly human, and yes, even many of us so utterly different and unique. Listen to the words of Gail Irwin. I have always loved reading his words in his book called The Jesus Style. He has a little section called The Strange Advance Man. And I don't know if you've ever heard Gail's preaching, but he's just about the funniest guy on the face of the planet and with a great heart for Jesus in the Bible. He wrote this book, The Jesus Style. And he says, here's this thing about Jesus' strange advance man. He says, if I were organizing a series of crusades around my own ministry and sending someone ahead to prepare the way, I would send a handsome, smartly dressed, smooth-talking ambassador who would in no way embarrass me. He says, Jesus obviously didn't do it my way. Instead, he used a raving, tactless man who dressed inappropriately for a minister and was committed to organic foods. <laughs> to top it all, he closed his services by doing the most undignified thing, dunking in water those who were brave enough to respond to his message. Then he quotes the Bible here. The Bible says, And so John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, if I could just jump in the middle of this here, there are always those that want to say, commentators and others, that there was a locust bush there and it has a little thing that grows on it and he was eating part of this bush and it really wasn't as radical as you think. So maybe you buy that until you go to the Middle East and then you're walking along and you see these outdoor stands and shops and people standing out in front waving you over and one of them waves you over and suddenly you're staring at a heaping, steaming pile of roasted grasshoppers. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm sorry, that erudite scholar convinced me he was eating a piece of a plant. I now know to this day they're eating grasshoppers over there and loving it. Much the same way you'd grab a bag of potato chips over here. And often the sign in front says, no one can eat just one. That part's a lie. But that's what I saw in my mind. You know, I saw the guys yelling and waving. I thought, yes, no one can eat just one. And anyway. And then they come in those cans and they fit perfectly together. No, just kidding. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> my son likes those potato chips. He marvels that they... Anyhow. Let's get back to Gail's book. So Gail Irwin goes on to say... If I were Jesus, I would be afraid I would have to spend most of my time explaining the actions of my forerunner. However, Jesus' whole life was marked by the use of the most unlikely persons 
And he adds this thought, you know, he always sees people differently than I do. I love that. I just love that. Especially when you go on to realize the kind of men that he gathered around him to be the key players on his team. And you go on and you study through them one by one. We've done that in the past. They're so desperately human. So that there is room for the most unlikely persons. I can give a personal testimony. From the time God began to call me to the ministry, I've had the same line that I've given him. I still give it to him at random, even in these days. I said from the very beginning, you have the wrong person here. Put your calling on somebody else. Put your calling on someone who won't mess up your operation. You've got the wrong guy. So I'm sorry. I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. And I have run from the Lord so many times. Because I feel that deep in my heart. I feel honestly like you've got the wrong person. But then I come and I read things like this. That he uses the most unlikely persons. And then I'm encouraged that God can use even me. And I get off my pity party and my weirdness trip and all of this. And I come back and I say, all right, you did call me. I know you called me. I'm over it. You know, get over it type thing. I'm over it. And what do you want me to do next? And I go on and God staggers me at what he's able to do through me. You know, Raul Reese, way back when God was calling him to the ministry, he went to Romaine over at Calvary Chapel. And he said, you know, Romaine, I know God's calling me. I see him beginning to use me. He said, but I just can't get over feeling like that boy who came to watch Jesus preach on the hillside the day he fed the 5,000 plus kids, women and children, maybe 30,000 people, that they got a boy's lunch. He said, I just can't get over the fact that I feel like I have nothing to offer but the equivalent of a boy's lunch. And yet the Lord has chosen to use me. And I stand back and look at his ministry, which just explodes and explodes and explodes. I've never seen such anointing and charisma in a person. And in my estimation, he's got a lot more than a boy's lunch. But you see, in his own heart, he feels like the most unlikely person. Do you feel like that today? Do you look around, see people use, and then, you know, go look in the mirror and go, you've got to be kidding. Take a good look. Look who's in there, you know? And I have a little joke. What's the mirror saying today? <laughs> you know? You walk by it and get some bad vibes from that thing. But you look in the mirror, you feel like the most unlikely person. God uses unlikely people. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I see that in the humanity of Jesus. I see it in his forerunner. I see it in his followers, his disciples. And then we go on, we see his ministry was announced that not only would he have a messenger, but, but that he has, would have the ministry of a prophet. Moses spoke of him. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he said, For the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like unto me. Him shall you hear, remember Jesus said in John 5, he said, look, you've been reading the scriptures. Don't you know that you follow Moses, but Moses spoke of me. Don't you get it? Moses said he would have a prophetic ministry. And certainly all of his preaching evidences that. And then the New Testament, the book of Acts, you have the guys preaching and they're quoting that. They're saying, look, this is what Moses said. We understand this. The Bible said he would be a priest. You find in Psalm 110.4 that there is the prophecy you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, you're just reading along through the Psalms and boom! 
here is this Melchizedek, and you're thinking, yeah, I wondered about him in, way back in Genesis. Now he surfaces in Psalms? What is this? Then you get to Hebrews. A portion of the book of Hebrews is dedicated to explaining how Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, how he ever lives to intercede for you, his sacrifice is complete for you. It goes on and on. It was prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, not only that he would be the mighty king, but then as you go on and read Everlasting Counselor, all of that, in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, it says, The government and peace that he will have will have no end. He'll sit upon the throne of David, and on and on it goes forever. And then, you open up the first, this is not an accident. When you open the Bible to the first gospel, you may have wondered, why isn't John first? Because I was told as a new believer to read John first. And John has written, we might know that he's a Christ. Yes, but Matthew's gospel is written by a Jew to the Jewish mind to show that Jesus was the king foretold. And they had to see their Messiah as king. All the way through Matthew, Jesus is shown to be the Messiah king. That is the intent. All the way through in the book of Matthew. And that is why it's first. So, the life of Christ. But then, when you get to the death of Christ and the prophecies of the Old Testament, the detail is absolutely amazing. It just goes on and on. Do you know that in the 24-hour period leading up to his death, in just the 24-hour period leading up to his death, Jesus Christ fulfilled 29 prophecies. 29 prophecies in a 24-hour period leading up to his death. I'm going to show you just a few of them, some of the key ones and how they were fulfilled. We'll move through these quickly. In Zechariah 13.7, it said he would be forsaken by his followers, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then in Mark 14, it says when Jesus was arrested, everyone deserted him and left. It said in the Psalms that he would be wrongly accused. Ruthless witnesses would come forward. And at Jesus' trial, Matthew 26 says in verse 60, many false witnesses came forward. It said in the Old Testament, again, that he would be ill-treated. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking and the spitting. The Bible is clear that by the time Jesus Christ got to the cross... He had been beaten so badly that he was no longer recognizable as a man. If you had come, if you had grown up with him, if you knew him, and then had walked up suddenly to see him hanging on the cross and looked at his face, his face was so mangled and beaten, you could not have possibly recognized him. That's how much they beat him. And that was foretold in Isaiah 50. Matthew records in chapter 26... In 67 and 78, it says, They spat in his face, and they struck him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? They made a game out of it. But they were fulfilling to a T the prophecy in Isaiah that he would be ill-treated. And then it was very clear in Isaiah 53 that he would not retaliate. 
Which is an amazing thing because you see how they would torture him. And then the Bible says in the Old Testament, but he's not going to retaliate back. It said he was oppressed. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And then Matthew tells us when he was being bullied by Pilate, that Jesus made no reply, not to even a single charge. Absolutely to the T, amazing. Matthew 27, 14. And then the Bible says, and this is so odd as you read in the Old Testament, the Bible says that he would be executed among thieves, among lawbreakers, in other words. And it turns out that they were thieves, but it doesn't really fit to our way of thinking to understand he's the king, he's the priest, he's the miracle worker, he's all of these things, and yet he's going to die a criminal's death. And you read that in Isaiah fifty-three twelve, he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-eight, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on his left. So he was crucified, executed with a criminal's death. That is to this day a stumbling block to the Jews. They have a very hard time believing that their Messiah could die the worst form of criminal execution. It's so below them, it's so shameful that Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to the Jews he's a stumbling block. Scandalon is the word that he uses. It's scandalous to them that he would die on a cross. Because they didn't even use crucifixion, the Jews, when they had the power to do capital punishment. And yet it was foretold that he would be crucified and between lawbreakers, criminals. In uh, Psalm 22, 16, it's actually right here on your little chart, as many of these are. It says about a third of the way down, Psalm 22, 16, that they would pierce his hands and his feet. And then you find in the Bible, this is fulfilled. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and many other references as you have there. And then amazingly enough, you, you follow this through and you think, well, he wouldn't retaliate. That's so hard to believe. He'd be crucified among thieves. That's so hard to believe. And certainly by that time, with all this power he would have, he would use it and suddenly get back. But no, it says that he would pray for his executioners. And it says in Isaiah 53:12, he made intercession for the transgressors. And we know from Luke 23 that as he's hanging on the cross, he said what? Father, forgive them. It is all so amazing. And then it said in uh, Psalm 34, 20, that his bones would be unbroken. It said the Lord protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. You go along and you read that and you wonder, oh, I wonder if that's really a messianic prophecy. Then you come to the cross and you understand that the Romans, I was reading about this the other day, that the Romans would break the legs of the victims to hasten their death at times. And the idea would be, they actually discovered, I found this out in Warner Keller's book, The Bible is History, in some casual reading. They actually discovered a burial area with a man and they found a skeleton and there were these big nail holes in his wrists which opened up to archaeologists the fact that they didn't crucify people through the hand as was believed before but they figured out that that studies had shown that would pull the nail right through the fingers 
and that you'd come right off the cross, but that they found this skeleton and he had been pierced through his wrist where the nail would hold. And then they found he had been pierced in his feet. And then they found that his bones right at the shins had been shattered and broken in half exactly as the Bible says they did to the thieves on either side of Jesus. And the reason they did that is because as you hung on the cross, they would put a little block of wood down under your feet so you could hold yourself up. Because if you didn't hold yourself up and you would collapse down, all the blood would rush to the bottom of your body and you would then become lightheaded and you would slowly basically suffocate and then you would have cardiac arrest and die. So that only promoted the agony because you'd be hanging there going faint and starting to suffocate. You'd push yourself back up with your feet, then you could breathe again, but that would cause more pain on your feet so you'd sag down again. You see, that's why crucifixion was the most hideous form of execution known in the world. The Persians invented it and they gave it over to the Romans and much of the world just rejected it. So they found this skeleton and his legs were shattered and broken and then they saw that they had actually cut his feet off. In other words, somehow this guy was extra strong evidently. They broke his legs and he still didn't die so they finally just chopped his feet right off. And then they, he died. And So you look at this form of death that Jesus died and when the Bible says none of his bones would be broken and then you read that the Romans did not break his bones because he was already dead again amazing detailed fulfillment the Bible said in Zechariah that his body would be pierced speaking of the crucifixion remember the soldier came along and he stuck a spear in the side of Jesus I don't know if he did that out of sheer meanness uh, like here, I'm going to have the last say so with you or what? But he did it and it fulfilled Zechariah 12.10 and you find that in John 19.34. And then an odd detail that the people would gamble for his clothing. Psalm 22.18 says, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then you find that they basically took his clothing, but what he had remaining was an undergarment that was seamless, woven from the top to the bottom, so they couldn't divide that up, so they gambled for it to see who could get it. And John 19, 23 and 24 says that they cast lots, they rolled the dice to see who would get it. And again, the prophecy fulfilled. That's only 10 prophecies out of 29 fulfilled in a 24-hour period leading up to his death. So the death of Christ foretold in great detail. And then the resurrection. We don't have time to go into it, but Psalm 16.10 says, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And we know Peter on the day of Pentecost, preaching along, he says, He rose from the dead. It's a fulfillment of what the psalmist wrote. It wasn't David that it was being spoke of because he's dead and his bones are there and his body was corrupted. This was a prophecy of the Messiah and it's come true. And I'm here to give you the good news that Psalm 16.10 has been fulfilled. Later, Paul is preaching in the book of Acts. He takes the same exact approach with the people to show them that the prophecy had come true of the resurrection. And then... Finally, the glory, even the glory, his ascension back into heaven was foretold in Psalm 68, 18. It says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, 
and even from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. And you go to Ephesians 4.8 and Paul's teaching along and he says, Therefore, he says, going back to the Psalms, when he ascended on high, when he rose from the dead and went back into heaven, he led captivity captive. He took all those souls that were in paradise as he spoke it to the thief on the cross He took them from the holding place of paradise where they'd been waiting until the atonement was paid for sin and he took them into heaven with him. And that was a fulfillment of the prophecy in the Psalms. And he gave gifts unto men and then Paul goes on to say and the gifts are evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets and so on. And so the fulfillment of his glory. Psalm 110.1 said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at your right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Hebrews opens up the book of Hebrews, showing that Christ is God with all of that. So, Christ, is he in the Old Testament? He's everywhere. He appears as a man, and then he vanishes. He appears as the angel of the Lord at critical times to guide the people along that are key players in the plan of redemption. One prophecy after the next foretells his coming and all the details of his life until there are 300 that are fulfilled. Remember last time when I told you the odds of fulfilling eight prophecies? I want to close with one more illustration. And that is the odds of fulfilling 48 out of the 300 prophecies. Because people always come along and they say, Oh, he faked it. He read the prophecies and lived the life. The odds of doing that and fulfilling even 48 prophecies. Listen to this. Again, this is in Peter Stoner's book. He wrote this. At one point he calculated that the chance of just 48 of the messianic prophecies being fulfilled in one person by chance was 1 in 10 to the... 157th power. Just 8 was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Remember that? And that was, I actually figured it out this week, that was 100 quadrillion. I couldn't even go that far last time, so I studied up on my math. 100 quadrillion, 10 to the 17th power. Now, we're talking about a chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now get this. To illustrate what this means, Stoner uses the example of an electron. And you all know what electrons are. They're down inside of atoms, right? It's as much as we know. And they're little. In fact, they're so little that they are so small that at the rate of 250 a minute... If you took a bunch of electrons and you line, just line them up one after the next at the rate of 250 a minute, it would take 1,090,000 years to count a line of them one inch long. One inch long. So we're talking a lot of electrons. 190 million years to count an inch worth. At the same rate, if you took a cubic inch, not just an inch long now, but a a cube of electrons, a cubic inch of electrons, 
and you counted them, get this, it would take you 190 million times 190 million times 190 million years to count a cubic inch of electrons. Now, who says you don't learn important things in church? Peter Stoner says that if we took this number of electrons, here we go again now, and marked one of them, and stirred them all together, and blindfolded a man. Now remember, it takes 190 million times 190 million times 190 million years just to count them. So now we blindfold a man, and we tell him that we've marked one of the electrons, and that he now has to go in and sort through all those electrons and find the marked one and come back and hold it up say this is the one the chances of a man being able to do that blindfolded are the same chances of Jesus Christ as a man fulfilling only 48 prophecies and he fulfilled three it's absolutely irrefutable evidence that he is everything the Bible says he is, that he is God, he was a man, and the great thing on top of all this is that the kind of a man that he was, the manner in which he came, so that there's no one so sinful, no one so low on the level of humanity that they would be intimidated to stay back from him, but that all might respond to his invitation that says, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so the common people heard him gladly, and they came and found salvation. Have you found this salvation in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, all you have to do to get it is admit right now to Jesus Christ you are a sinner. Confess your sins to him. Tell him you believe he died on the cross and rose again for you and ask him to come and save you and live in your life. And he will come and he will be your Lord and he will lead you and guide you. And if you're sincere and you reach out to him from the depths of your being and you want forgiveness and you want to go to heaven when you die, that is the way he has ordained that you would come. Not only has he made himself so relatable in any other, every other way, but he has made the avenue of salvation as simple as he could possibly make it, so simple a child can understand it. If you understand it today and you don't know him and you see the evidence of who he is, open your heart and come and find salvation in Jesus Christ today. And you can do that even now as we pray. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that is revealed in the scriptures concerning you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that salvation in you is only a prayer away. Lord, we do ask that you would cleanse us all, every one of us, from our sin. And Lord, that you would live within us, manifest your life. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us and manifest yourself to us as everything the Bible says that you are, but mostly, most importantly, as the Savior of our sins. And Lord, give us each one that sense of knowing we are forgiven that we will go to heaven when we die. And we will be careful to give you all the glory as you work that work within us of freedom that we could never work on our own. As you show us your strength where we've had nothing but weakness, freedom where we've only had bondage and peace where there was guilt. 
Lift the burden of our sin. Replace it with your love and your peace. And give us this everlasting life. And may we enjoy it even now. For we ask these things in your name. For your glory. Amen.